Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. Well, good morning, and thank you for this opportunity uh, to speak. Um, my speaking opportunities these days are few and far between and greatly, greatly cherished uh, when I get the opportunity. Uh, my name is Grat Carell. I'm a family physician and a proud member of CMDA going all the way back to the 1980s uh, when I was translating for what was them, uh, MMI, now GHO, uh, trips, and it's been a pleasure to be a part um, of this organization. The message today um, is entitled, The Most Kissed Face in History. The Most Kissed Face in History. I know I've got you guys um, curious now who this is, and to help sort of uh, framework and intro the main body of the talk today, I've got three different stories that I want to tell you. Hopefully this will set the stage so what I say is not too much of a stream of consciousness uh, kind of approach, but three short stories to sort of set up uh, today's message. Story number one takes place about 150 years ago um, in Paris. Um, a young woman was pulled out of the Seine River, apparently um, a victim of accidental drowning, which would not have been um, uncommon uh, then. And the really sad thing about her story was that she was a complete unknown. She had uh, no identification on her. Uh, no one came to claim the body. No one came to the police um, station to uh, report her missing. And really all that they could tell about her is that she was young, probably a teenager. Uh, from her dress, um, it appeared that she was a peasant and that she was all alone uh, in this world. And the police began referring to her as l'inconnue de la Seine, the unknown woman uh, of the Seine. And to aid them in their investigation, the police did something that to us today seems very strange, but back then it actually made sense, and that was they made a death mask. Now, a death mask was a plaster of Paris impression um, of someone's face uh, at the moment uh, of death. And the reason they did that is they would um, take unknown bodies, they would put them on public display uh, at the morgue, at the city morgue, and then people would file through and they would look and see who these people were that had passed away. Of course, within a very short period of time, decomposition would make it such that uh, you wouldn't be able to recognize uh, who the person was. So the death mask was placed by their body to aid in, um, to aid in the identification uh, process. Now, her death mask, and I've got a copy of it here, was something that just fascinated Parisians. Now, you've got to remember that at this time, Europe, France in particular, but Europe in general was in the process of rewriting their cultural story. They were coming up with a brand new uh, worldview that divorced itself from its historical religious past. Uh, they were teaching that we were not a byproduct of uh, a loving creator. There was no God. There was no heaven. There was no hell. We were just an accidental byproduct of the universe. And when your life ends, you are blotted out into nothingness, um, and your consciousness ceases to exist. And when they saw this lady's death mask in the morgue, in contrast to the majority of people's death masks, who showed the final moments of life being marked by agony 
and grief and pain and suffering, this particular lady had a sense of serene, calm acceptance about what was about to transpire. Her, she has almost this coy smile as if she was given a glimpse, a preview of what was to come. And this flew in the face of the rising secularism in, of Europe at the time, and people began talking about her expression and said, my gosh, could there be something beyond this life? Could there actually be life after death? She quickly became the most well-attended uh, corpse uh, in the morgue. And people would line up for hours and hours to see her. As a matter of fact, uh, poets wrote poems, writers did uh, 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 essays on her, uh, plays were uh, conducted, literature was written, songs were sung about her, and she became the most popular person to, to see in Paris at the time. She actually inspired an entire generation of women um, and their fashion styles, and women began to try to model their appearances and their looks um, after this particular lady. Well, copies of her death mask uh, were made, and... Um, Let's see. Oh, there we go. Copies of her death mask uh, were made and distributed throughout Europe, and she quickly became the most, the second most recognized smile uh, by Europeans after uh, the Mona Lisa. Uh, if you saw her and you lived at that time, you knew who this lady was. But interestingly enough, we never, like the Mona Lisa, never knew who she was. She was a complete unknown. Strange, isn't it, how someone who is so well-recognized cannot have an individual identity? And that's the end of story number one. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, you just left me on a cliffhanger here, okay? I'm gonna, I got two more stories. I'm going to tie it all together. It's going to be a nice little intro to, to our message today. But here's story number two. Story number two takes place in the 1960s. Uh, there were three physicians who were trying to pioneer a brand new method for resuscitating and reviving people who had drowned. We now call that method CPR today. Um, and they quickly realized that this was something that couldn't be taught in a textbook kind of situation. This was really more of an experiential, hands-on learning kind of technique. So they hired a, a toy maker by the name of Laerdahl to create a mannequin that could help them in the process of teaching CPR. Well, being a toy maker, he understood the very powerful psychology of uh, toys. I mean, for instance, you, you got a child and you've got a cute little clown and how that makes the child feel good, but then you got a little creepy clown and that really freaks the child out. So the way things look really determine oftentimes the emotional reaction you have. And he realized that people, oftentimes lay people, were going to be thrust into a situation that was very high emotion. And so he had to have the perfect face. This was going to be a very intimate thing, mouth to mouth, lip to lip. And so he had to make sure that he found the perfect face. So he searched all over Europe. Uh, he interviewed models. He looked at paintings. He looked at photos. And he just couldn't find the right face until, <clears throat> until he found a copy of the death mask of the unknown woman. We finally have a name for her. She's called Rasusa Annie, and if any of you have ever taken CPR, 
you have kissed the face of this unknown woman. It's estimated that Rasustayani has trained over 400 million people worldwide. Um, she's widely regarded as the, being the most kissed face in all of human history. And it's estimated that the tragic death of this teenager has saved over two and a half million lives. There is an old saying, and I think it's true, that sometimes God can hit straight with a crooked arrow. And that is the end of story number two. Story number three took place just a couple years ago and involved me. I got a very rare uh, condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. A lot of times when you hear about the medications advertised on TV, they say, well, don't take this medication if you've had Guillain-Barre syndrome. That's what I had. Uh, it's an autoimmune reaction where your body attacks your own body. And specifically what it does is it breaks down the insulation that coats the electrical conductivity through the nerves in your body. So imagine if you had a mouse that was eating at the uh, plastic coating of an electric wire in the wall, it wouldn't be able to conduct electricity very well. And over a series of several weeks, I began losing the ability to use my arms and my legs, and that began to spread proximally up my body until it got to my face, and I had trouble chewing and swallowing, and I knew that the next step uh, was going to be trouble breathing, and it could be fatal. Uh, thank God, um, I got the proper treatment and have made a 98% uh, recovery from that. But that was my brush with death. And I've had several years to think about what it means to die, because I've gone through the death experience in slow motion. You know, death for most of us comes instantaneously most of the time, but for me, my body was dying over a period of weeks and weeks, and I could experience that in a slow motion effect. And so what I want to share with you today is five things, five things that I have learned from my experiences circling the grave. Number one, If there, seems, if there is a theme to old age, it seems to be one of loss. Now, I know that there are the eternal optimists in the crowd who will say, oh, but, but look at all the things you get when you get older. You get grandchildren, and, and that may be true. That may be true for some people, um, but you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed to lose. Gain is optional but loss is not. You're going to lose your hair. You're going to lose your teeth. You're going to lose your six-pack abs. You're going to lose your energy. You're going to lose your enthusiasm. You're going to lose your youth. You're going to use, lose your beauty. Your body will betray you. This thing that for decades and decades you have depended upon and has been your best friend is now all of a sudden turning on you. We spend our lives building our kingdoms, don't we? We get to that point in our 40s, sometimes our 50s, where we crawl up on the castle that we have made and we sit on the wall and we look out at all of, all of our efforts and everything that we have achieved and what inevitably happens, we fall off. And all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put us back together again. It's the reason we teach these nursery rhymes to children. 
At best, everything you do, every Botox shot, every medication you take, every time you go to the gym, at best, it only delays the inevitable. And we will get to the point where everything is lost. Now, for those of you who have not experienced loss, who have not gotten to that stage in your life, what I'm going to say next is a little strange, but for those of you who have walked that road, this will hopefully resonate. There are times when God is a real son of a gun. Um, I I, I know that sounds very sacrilegious to say, um, but it's actually very scriptural. I mean, there are times when you are going to look at heaven and question God's character and what he's doing. I got a psalm for you, Psalm 88. Boy, if you haven't read this, um, you need to pick it up. It's been dubbed an embarrassment to conventional faith. It's been termed the most antithetical piece of Scripture to traditional religion. Listen to what the psalmist says. And he says this not with, not with a tone of, of, of traditional uh, religion. He says it with anger and resentment. He said, why? Why, God, are you turning a deaf ear to me? Why are you making yourself scarce in my moment of need? I have taken the worst that you could hand out. I'm bleeding, I'm black and blue, and the only friend I have left is darkness. You will walk that road. You will get to that point. Because loss is the litmus test of faith. I had a friend who told me what, what we, how we act is reflective of what we've been taught, but how we react is reflective of what we've learned. You spend decades and decades going to church, reading scripture, being in chapel, doing all those kinds of things, but when loss grabs you unexpectedly, you will find out what you really believe. Some of you have been there. Some of you are about to go there. And for those of you who aren't, who are still 12 feet tall and bulletproof in your 20s, let me just give you one piece of advice. When someone is going through trials, let them shake their fist at heaven. Let them curse and yell and scream and defame and decharacterize God. It doesn't take him off of his throne. If anything, it's honest. The Lord knows how we feel. He wants us to be able to communicate. And the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do is try to invalidate their pain by expressing Pollyannish platitudes. At a minimum, that makes you one of Job's comforters, and at worst, it makes you somebody um, who is antithetical with Scripture and guilty of heresy. You're going to lose. Number two, the inevitable is the inevitable. It's really strange. We live in this youth-oriented culture. Historically, um, man has always been connected to death. I can remember being on a GHO trip many years ago, having a mother who brought her child in. Um, child was nine months old, weighed eight pounds. Eight pounds. That's what our babies weigh in America when they're born. And the child was dying from malnutrition in front of us. Uh, the death rate for infants in that village was about 10 to 20 percent. Most of them died of things that were completely uh, preventable in the United States, um, neonatal tetanus, malnutrition. I looked at the mother and I said, wow, you know, your child is literally dying in front of me. Uh, how do you feel about this? She said, babies die. That's what happens. 
But we live in this culture where we have divorced ourselves of that very real fact. We live in this youth-oriented culture. We think we're going to be young for forever. And when I talk to people about death, they use things like prepositions like, well, if I die, if. <clears throat> I mean, it's not an if. And the question really is not even when. <clears throat> the question is not even how. Uh, the question is, but what is next? And so we have to learn how to ask the proper question because the inevitable is the inevitable. Number three, <clears throat> there is a fate worse than death. There is a fate worse than death. We spend a lot of time, effort, and energy uh, facing trying to avoid death. Um, and, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Greek fable of Tithonus. I know that's sort of a strange thing to do in a Christian presentation, but <clears throat> it does help to illustrate the point that I'm going to make. So Tithonus, probably a story you don't know. It's one of the lesser-known Greek fables, but um, Tithonus was a mortal. Um, his wife was um, a goddess um, and therefore eternal, and she was so in love with him that she couldn't bear the thought of having to face eternity without him. So she devised a plan. She decided she was going to trick all the other gods and goddesses into giving him eternal life, which they did. The problem was they forgot to give him eternal youth. So her husband became older and older, more and more decrepit, more and more disabled, until finally he curled up in a little ball in the corner, but would not die. And he cursed his wife for giving him this eternal life. And the point of the fable is this. Sometimes there is a fate that's worse than death. And sometimes God's mercy is expressed not in helping us delay the inevitable, but in allowing it to occur. That's lesson number three. Lesson number four, death brings life, sometimes, sometimes. Now, if you're a secularist, if you believe that we are an accidental byproduct of the universe, that one day nothingness had a seizure and out popped humanity and slime plus time equals mankind, and that when you die, you know, you become food for worms and your consciousness ceases to exist, I, I got nothing for you. I mean, you're just... You're hopeless. I grew up atheist. I understand that world. I understand that perspective. But if you're a Christian, death is the beginning of the great reset. I mean, it is the thing that allows all things to be new. My life flows on in endless song above all of earth's lamentations, and I can hear this sweet but far-off hymn that hails a new creation. And through all the toil and all the strife, I can hear that song, that music ringing. It echoes within my soul. How can I keep it from singing? And, and, and though all of my joys and my comforts, they die, I know that my Savior lives, liveth. And through all that darkness that gathers around, still there is a song in the night that he giveth. Because no storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that refuge I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Anybody recognize that hymn? 
It's an oldie. Yeah. Lesson number five, don't die before you're dead. Now, you guys know that person, and maybe one of your family members, who talks about their life as if they are imminently, precipitately on the edge of death. They are leaving and checking out of this world, and they've been doing that for 30 years. Yeah. I, I'm a ninny when it comes to death. I don't know why I fear it such. Uh, fear is an incompetent teacher, and I encourage you not to die before you're dead. How do I tie this into CMDA? How do I bring this all together for this organization? Um, you know, as physicians, um, we, we deal with death um, as part of our job. Unfortunately, the last three years with COVID, um, it has been a daily part of our job. There was a time, a, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, where literally every single morning I would come to work and there would be another patient who had passed away and been um, in the emergency room. And there's one perspective I think that we have as physicians when we are reading a biography or a story where people's lives are coming to an end and we are outside that, but it's a very different kind of experience when we become a character within that story ourselves. And that death that we look at and we treat becomes part of our own personal everyday experience. But it could be worse. Part of history you probably don't know, AD 536 was considered the worst year to be alive. There was a Byzantine historian who said that that particular year, a fog um, plunged most of Europe, the Middle East, and even parts of Asia into continual night and darkness that the sun would only shine at maximum for uh, about the brightness um, of, the, of the moon, and that this darkness lasted for a year and a half. Crops failed. It snowed in the middle of summer. People died of starvation. And then in the middle of all this, the bubonic plague uh, hit. And historians estimate that in that one year alone, somewhere between one-third to one-half of everybody died in one year. Doesn't make COVID look so bad. For some reason, God has authored suffering and death. You know, he could have done it very differently. He could have just said, okay, you know, when your time comes, poof, you know, you disappear, you're gone. But for some reason, he has made the human experience to be defined by the winding down of our lives and all that goes uh, along with it. Matter of fact, this is something that's so critical and important uh, in Scripture. It was written in the very first book that we believe to ever have been penned in the Bible, the book uh, of Job. Now, granted, Moses talks about things from the beginning of time, but we, many scholars think that Job actually was born and lived prior to, to Moses. And so here's the first time God comes to man and he says, write all this down so that everybody can reference it throughout human history. And what does he talk about? He talks about suffering and death and old age and all these things. And for almost 40 chapters, Job and his friends, you know, debate back and forth as to how God could allow this to happen and what the causes are and the who, what, when, where, and why until finally God just has to put his hand up and just say, stop, you guys sound like, like idiots. Interesting book. God never answers why. And that's sort of the point of the book. We don't have to know why. We just have to learn how to trust. Our role is not understanding. Our role is trusting. 
I had a friend of mine whose uh, father is um, dying slowly of dementia, and he gave me this particular insight. In the next life, our lives will be perfect, right? We'll be free of all of our suffering and imperfections and everything. But on this side of life, on this side of eternity, is the only time that we get to glorify God in our suffering, in our pain, and in our anger. We won't be able to do that on the other side of eternity. So here's the conclusion. I started off by telling you about the most kissed face in history and how, um, how many people's lives were saved as a result. I'll conclude with the once kissed face in history. Scripture only describes uh, Jesus being kissed one time. I'm sure his mama kissed him when he was a baby, but, but for purposes of, of illustration, uh, the Bible only records Jesus being kissed once, and that's when he was uh, being betrayed by Judas. It's amazing how one person's life can change the life of so many others. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then Bert's going to come up and do the announcements. God, you are the God of great gain, but you are also the God of great loss. You are the God of happiness and joy, but you're also the God of sadness and illness and sickness. And sometimes we look at you with blinders on, hoping that you will just be one who gives us all the good things that we want, and we get, forget that from your hand comes both blessing and cursing, good things and bad things, sunshine and rain, light and darkness. I don't attempt to understand who you are or how you do things, for your ways are greater than my ways, and your knowledge is greater than mine. My job is to learn to trust, to believe even though I don't understand, to have the kind of faith that Hebrews talks about, the substance of things not seen. It's an oxymoron, really, but that is faith. And that's what having a relationship with you is all about. I pray for those that we see each day whose lives are being affected by illness and death and suffering and grief. I know that through all those things you are still God. And I know that not just from reading Scripture, but I know from walking that road myself. And though I don't understand much of why you do what you do, I do know that through your death and your sacrifice, many can have life. And that sets us home free. The ultimate healing. And I thank you for all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.